Hey guys, welcome back to the another episode of podcast. I'm your host Pushpak. For today's episode, we have with us Murtaza Bambad. Murtaza is a founder at uh, Heartbeat Chat. Welcome to the show, Murtaza. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. So let us begin with introduction about uh, yourself, maybe. Yeah. About uh, for sure. Uh, so my background, I'm the founder of a company called Heartbeat. Uh, we build online community. We're, we're an online community platform. So we help folks that are building learning communities, online mm-hmm. courses, cohort based courses, even just like general communities come together. Uh, and the big thing that we do is, you know, right now, most people use like Slack and Discord. Uh, where they have all their conversations, but we give you the conversations piece that Slack and Discord has. Plus, we help you host your content, your events, and all of your analytics so that it's a fully uh, it's a fully fledged platform for everything in your community to happen. Uh, before this, I was um, running a HR tech company called Career Blitz, where we were building AI to help recruiters hire top of the funnel candidates better and really make more thoughtful and intentional decisions about who they brought into their company. Uh, and I've done a couple other things was uh, head of community for Georgia Tech's uh, official collegiate mm-hmm. accelerator uh, and then just some odd jobs here and there. Awesome. Amazing. So I want to get right into about your story. Like I read one of your tweets and that's how I got in touch with you, right? Like uh, so you, you kind of became homeless and then you lost a lot of money. And I think I, this is after your first startup, like uh, like when, when you started this uh, HR tech startup, right? So I want to know yeah. about that story, like how this happened and how you came out of it, basically. Absolutely. So I was running, uh, we basically, it was a friend of mine um, in college. Uh, we were working together on a job board because okay. we saw that a lot of our friends were having difficulties going out, finding internships, finding full-time mm-hmm. jobs. And it was really smart people. But the problem was, is when people go out and look for a job, they tie their self-worth to a job, right? So when you don't get the job, you're like, oh, it's because of me. Like, I'm not good enough. Like, you know, all these like very, very personal issues. So that really stuck with us. And we mm-hmm. saw a lot of the people that we respected the most just so downtrodden because they were struggling to just even get in the door at, at companies. Okay. And so we wanted to build a job board that while you were using it, it actually taught you the best ways to apply to companies and mm-hmm. incre- increase your chances of actually getting hired. And so what it ended up becoming was this job board where you could one click apply to companies all over the world. It would save your information. It would copy and paste it. And it was basically like a script that would, you know, you would pick 30 companies it would ask you, you know, what's your name? What's your resume? What's your email? It would fill in the blanks at all of these applications and any like specific questions it would send back to you. So you just fill those out. Mm -hmm. And in like 10 minutes, you could apply to like a hundred jobs. And so we built this thing out, we launched it uh, and it took us a little bit of time to figure out the marketing. But once we got it within eight months, we were at like 25,000 users. So this thing was growing just incredibly fast. Uh, the problem being is that you can't really make money off a job board, right? Like if you think about who you're, who you're offering this to, like job seekers don't have money. Mm -hmm. Um, we tried doing the, uh, company route, which is kind of like what indeed and Glassdoor and these like other big job boards do, but it, it was a pretty competitive environment and there wasn't much that we were offering aside from, Hey, we just have a bunch of students on our platform. That's growing really fast. Right. When you're, when you're mm-hmm. selling to indeed who has millions of people, like you're, you're still trying to fight this talent war. And so we, we struggled to monetize that a lot. Um, and at the same time, you know, we were running this company. I was finishing up my last year in college uh, and I was roommates with my co-founder 
we had kind of agreed between ourselves that, Hey, we're going to do this full time afterwards. We're going to figure out how to make it work. Cause we want to create a world where we're hiring is so much easier. Um, but what ended up happening was that he was actually on the side interviewing with different companies, interviewing with different people. And not only was he just like not telling me, he was actually mm-hmm. having other people cover for him too. Whereas like, oh. you know, he'd be, yeah. So he'd mm-hmm. be that weekend, he'd be going and interviewing at like Facebook and our mutual okay. friends would be like, oh, he's just going and visiting his family in New Jersey. Right. So mm-hmm. it was just like weird things like that. It was, okay. it was this funny thing where it's like, yeah, there's a lot of trust issues and a lot of things that started boiling <laughs> up. Uh, but, you know, I, I was kind of left in the dark. And then we get to the night before graduation. Right. So we're about to leave school. I've turned down my job offers. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go. We're going to go build this thing. Mm-hmm. And the night before he comes to me and he tells me, I'm not going to do this with you. I took a job at Google. Oh. And so not only that, but there was also we we had won $10,000 in like a pitch competition um, about like seven or eight months before we'd spent about 4,000 of that. And so we had 6,000 in the bank uh, and he took 5,000 out because he was like, this is my share of the pitch competition winnings mm-hmm. uh, and then kind of just left. So now I had a thousand dollars in my bank account. I was about to graduate. I didn't have a full time job and I needed to figure out how to live. Uh, and so, yeah, so this is, this is kind of like the setting of like, yeah, now I was like, definitely, you know, mm-hmm. homeless. Um, so out, out of that thousand, I found a place like in Atlanta for like $400 a month, um, which for, for reference on Atlanta rent is extremely cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason it was extremely cheap was because it was just infested with bugs. Uh, <laughs> and so there was, it was really bad, man. It was like cockroaches and and like, it was the worst place I've lived in without a doubt. And so I stayed there for a month. And after that, I was like, all right, I can fare my chances better somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so after I left there, I basically, I, you know, loaded up all of my stuff in boxes. I handed it over to friends and I said, Hey, can you keep this in your basement? Can you keep this in your apartment? And so all of my stuff just got dispersed across friends all around Atlanta. And I asked other folks just, Hey, can I have a couch to sleep on? Can I crash over here? And so sometimes I would sleep in my car. Sometimes I would sleep on somebody's couch. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was, I was a TA when I was at Georgia tech, I was a teaching assistant. And so there was this one room that I had access to that had bean bags. Mm -hmm. And so every so often I would tap in access that room and go sleep on the bean bags. Mm -hmm. And that was like my, that was my bedroom. Uh, And so for three months, man, I did that. And I, there was a co-working space that their buzzer didn't work to get in. So I would just like tailgate people in, or I would just like follow people in. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had some free cereal over there. And so I eat free cereal. They had bread they had cheese and they had a panini press. So you could make grilled cheese sandwiches. So I would do that. I'd eat oatmeal. Cause that's cheap. Uh, it's about $2 mm-hmm. for yeah, 20 yeah, packets. Yeah. Uh, and then I would eat ramen and that's what I did. And I worked 15 hour days and I just like kept kind of powering through it. And my goal during this whole time was we needed to raise some funding Mm -hmm. and we needed to show that we could build an idea that would actually make some money. And that's kind of what we needed to be able to like go out and raise funding. And so we, we iterated on the job board quite a bit. We actually ended up trying to charge people for money to use the job board. And we got a little bit of success there enough that, you know, we had a few hundred dollars that we had made off of there over the course of a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And then we were able to shop that around to investors. Uh, and I, I honestly think we got lucky with the first investor. Uh, but we had somebody say, yes, I'm into it. And then they invested a hundred thousand uh, dollars. And then all awesome. of a sudden now I have money to actually buy an apartment. Cool. 
so like uh, you were running your startup uh, alone basically like right? your co-founder kind of left and this was there, there was a time like you were doing it all alone by yourself and correct yeah so my co-founder left so i was a solo founder we had other folks that were sort of on our like in mm-hmm. air quotes i'll say team because we weren't paying them they were just like other friends from college like people that we knew that thought what we were doing was interesting and what we used to do a lot was anytime we would get some kind of a small win we would tell that to everybody around us right so we were kind of creating this journey that was very public with all the folks that we went to college with and so because we were doing that so publicly it was a lot easier to get these folks to jump on and say oh i want to help build this with you i want to help come do this with you and so they weren't co-founders meaning they weren't sort of taking the level of ownership of like this is the direction the company is okay. going to mm-hmm. but they would write code they would help me figure out problems if i gave them something to work on they would knock it out right so they were reliable trustworthy people but they just weren't thinking at the level of like hey i don't know what direction the business needs to go to like who do i talk to about this so before raising the funds like did you uh, were you making the profits in your organization or it was uh... We very very little. So we made about five hundred dollars selling the um, access to the job board to students, and we tried to sell it to uh, people that were like full time looking for their full time jobs. And so we'd say, "Hey, we'll give you access to this for six months. It costs this much money, and we'll also like jump on calls with you and help you figure out your resume and figure out your interview structure and things like that." So it was sort of like both the tech product and the services product, but our goal was just like. how do we get some revenue in the door like as as soon as possible okay okay so what happened to that of uh, your first uh, venture right now yeah so we we ran the job board um honestly after the funding came in maybe a month or two after that we really realized that the job board there was no way that was going to scale like we couldn't get enough people to actually mm-hmm. you know put money towards it okay. the difficulty with job boards that we found is that any product you have like has to have some degree of virality factor right mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be completely viral but every customer you get should be able to tell at least like one other person that hey this is a cool thing that i'm using mm-hmm. uh and with job boards the problem is is that 90% of people will come visit a job board they won't apply to enough jobs they won't use it enough mostly because the market is competitive right it's really hard to just get people to use a system uh because they won't do that they're going to have a negative experience and they're not going to tell other people and if they do tell other people they'll be like hey we use this job board and it didn't work mm-hmm. and so if 90% of your people are churning you have no virality no word of mouth and past the founders just growth hacking the product there's not really much growth that you can expect yeah. so there was a lot of problems around that and then there's a lot of problems around just like the efficacy of like how well job boards actually work mm-hmm. and the honest answer is like they don't so mm-hmm. your likelihood of getting a job through a job board is 0.02% Okay. So it's that bad. And so we were like, all right, we got to find out a solution that works. And so what we did is we said, all right, we have all this data, we have all this understanding about how recruiting works. Let's build a product for the actual recruiters. Mm-hmm. And so what we wanted to do is I I noticed this while I was like working at different jobs and like different internships. So I worked at like Delta Airlines, I interned there for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um anytime we posted a job, we'd instantly get like 250 applicants. Uh okay. and like we didn't have time to sift through all of those. a lot of them just like would not be a great fit just off the bat uh because they were just like applying for any job that they saw right and so you'd have somebody with like a biology degree applying mm-hmm. for like a very heavy IT role right <laughs> zero IT experience in their background um so it's like you'd see things like that that happen pretty often so we were like okay what if we can build a solution 
that helps figure out out of all the people that apply, these are the people that you should bring into your first round interview. And so we iterated on that. We made a couple versions of it and it took about a year to figure out the right mix. But once we did, uh, we were able to actually like build it out. We got 30 companies using it. And what we were doing was we were actually taking all of your past hiring data. So we'd plug into your existing systems. We'd figure out, okay, all the software engineers you've interviewed, this is what they look like. These are the Mm -hmm. ones that make it to the first round, the final round. This is the ones you give offers to. And for your next software engineer, we can layer this on top of the people that are coming in and understand who's the right fit. And what we were finding was it was actually less biased than what the Mm -hmm. recruiters were doing themselves. Because right now I would, I would, if I gave it a ballpark number, it's like 70% of the recruiting decisions made at that stage is, you know, where'd you go to college or where was your last company? Right. So it's incredibly biased. Mm -hmm. It's hard to blame the recruiters because they're looking through like a thousand resumes a day. Like it's an incredibly high number, uh, but it's still super biased. Right. And so we wanted to basically, that's what basically what we did is we would make the list of, all right, you had 250 people come in. Here's the 25 you want to bring into first round interviews. And we'd actually give like three sentence justifications for each one. uh, And it was all AI generated. And it would pull Mm -hmm. things like, all right, you worked at this company. You were doing software engineering for them. They actually use this tech stack. And we know that because we use some third party tools to figure that out. They also grew from this stage to this stage. So you can probably assume that this person knows how to build scaling infrastructure. And so we do all this stuff where we're basically like reading in between the lines of the resume and then creating that paragraph and sending it to the recruiter. Right. So like, uh, when did you stop working at this venture and when, like how you came up with the idea of uh, chart, uh, your current company, basically hard bit. Yeah. So we, we were building it until, um, uh, April, 2020. So we were building it. We had all these companies on board mm-hmm. and what was happening is it was actually working really well. So we got paid on contingency fee, okay. uh, which means we got 10% of the first year salary of any hire that we helped make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were our placement, like rate, like our, our numbers for placement were we were helping place people with between 150 K and 250 K salaries. Okay. So it was a ton of money that was coming yeah, in, yeah, yeah. but the problem was we went out to go raise uh, and we were raising 2 million. We ended mm-hmm. up actually having the term sheets come in for that money, uh, but that's when COVID hit. And so um, COVID hit and it hit New York and quarantine hit New York. That's where our lead investor was. And so okay. we had the term sheet come in on a Wednesday. And then that Friday, we get a call saying, hey, we want to pull out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so them plus all the other investors pulled out basically at the same time. So $2 million like disappears overnight. And then that Monday is when all of the coronavirus layoffs started. So out of the 30 companies that we were working with, all but two canceled their work with us Mm -hmm. and basically said, we're going on a hiring freeze. We've half of them like let go their like entire recruiting teams. So there were these teams of like seven, eight people that we Mm -hmm. just like let go. We just don't work with them anymore. Yeah. Um, And so basically over four days, the entire business disappeared. Uh, And so, yeah, we had to make this tough decision of like, do we sit on our hands for a year and a half, two years and wait for recruiting to bounce back? Or do we, you know, um, do we go build something else? Mm -hmm. And for me, like time is the most valuable asset that I have, right? Like, yeah, Yeah. there's money, there's this, there's that. But it's like, 
I'm right now today I'm 25, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I only have this much energy for another maybe five, 10 years, right? Where I could stay up all night, code, work, drink Red yeah, Bull, yeah. do whatever I need to. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I can't waste this on hoping that this business comes back. Okay. And so we talked to all of our investors, we had the tough conversations and they kind of agreed too. And so we made the tough call to say like, all right, we're going to spin this down. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I spent a month just honestly depressed out of my mind because mm-hmm. we just <laughs> shut down this company we were running for three and a half years. Um, but my coping mechanism was that I was on Discord and I was playing League of Legends all day. Uh <laughs> Cause I couldn't check my email. If I was checking my email, I was going to get a panic attack. And I, I was doing that. And so I was like, all right, let me just play League of Legends all day. Mm-hmm. And it was funny to me because I was jumping on discord. We'd have these like crazy conversations with people on league. And then we jump off 45 minutes later and then we do it again. And I just do that like five times in a row mm-hmm. and build these incredible relationships with people. Yeah. But man, I've been living in Atlanta my whole life, trying to build these relationships with founders and investors in San Francisco and New York. And I've been struggling. Yeah. So I was like, why is this so easy in gaming, but it's so difficult for everything else? Mm-hmm. And that was like the big spark of like, man, community just has not been done well on the internet. Yeah. Uh, and so a couple months later, I actually, uh, so actually, sorry, the one month later, I ended up joining Georgia Tech's Accelerator. So I'd gone mm-hmm. through them as a student um, and I, I came back as a partner. I didn't know this until I joined, but they're actually the largest accelerator on the East Coast of the United States right now. Okay. So they are running cohorts of 70 companies, 250 plus founders per cohort. So like mm-hmm. surprising size. Uh, and we were, we were an all in-person shop. So we were actually like in the process of buying a building in downtown Atlanta when COVID hit. So they yeah. were very quickly trying to shift everything to remote. And so what ended up happening was, you know, I came in as a partner. My job was to help a group of a batch of like 12 teams get to the finish line over 12 weeks. Uh, but you know, week two, the managing director pulls me aside and says, Hey, these teams aren't really connecting. They're not like actually building the relationships and the bonds that we want. Can you help us solve this? And so Mm -hmm. kind of week two, my job title switches from a partner to 12 teams to head of community for all 70 companies. Okay. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I was doing was figuring out. So there's, there's sort of two sides to this, right? There's the tech level infrastructure of like, how do we create our platforms like Slack and Notion and Airtable? make them easy to use, make it so that people naturally come together, participate in conversations that are active Mm -hmm. there. But then the second part is how do we make it so that when you leave the accelerator, you actually do have your speed dial of your top 10 founders you're going to call when you have a problem, right? Because that's the real power of an accelerator is you get an instant network. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I was doing was just experimenting around events and introductions and just trying to figure out the right mix of things that, that would work. And what we found is that when you build this really strong community, like that by itself could be your secret weapon. So we were seeing like people snowball their raises because of this. So we saw people come out of a collegiate accelerator in Atlanta and they were raising at like Y Combinator levels of funding. So they would okay. come out, we could snap our fingers, help them raise anywhere from half a million to 2 million for their seed round. Uh, we could have people come in, we would snowball um, introductions for their sales. And we had multiple companies go from zero to six figure revenue over the course of three months. We were Dang. seeing product cycles. Yeah, we were seeing product sprints, uh, you know, get faster and accelerate all of this stuff, like everything was just moving faster and faster. Mm-hmm. And it was because it wasn't just people in the active cohort helping other active cohort people. But it was people even like five, six years prior that had graduated and kind of gotten disengaged. And we're coming back in and quarterbacking the rounds for these folks. Um, so like one example is we, we had our, uh, one of, we had our first unicorn come out. It's a company called stored, uh, okay. by Sean Henry. 
Mm-hmm. Sean Henry has helped quarterback like multiple raises just this year where he's made all the introductions for the founder and he'll jump on the phone and like help them mm-hmm. out. Um, and so that was sort of what we were seeing is there's this model of like, kind of like the older siblings helping the younger siblings. Uh, yeah. And because of that, we, this was like our secret weapon. Like we were moving faster than any accelerator I'd ever seen. Um, the problem being is that I was working like 60, 70 hour weeks just to get the community to like actually like cohesively work together. Um, And it was just a very unsustainable job. I was taking Mm -hmm. calls at 2 a.m. I was always, you know, working. I was always fiddling around with Slack, trying to make it do what we needed it to do. And so that was really our inspiration for Heartbeat is we wanted to see a world with more of these communities, but there was no tech infrastructure to actually enable that. And so we wanted to build the easy platform where all of these conversations, all the content, all the events that you're hosting as a community can come together. And mm-hmm. for you as a community manager, we can give you the superpowers to click one button and it does 12 things for you. Awesome. So do you have any competitors in this space or you guys are the early movers? We have a few competitors that have popped up here and there. I think over the last year, the honest answer is community has become this really big buzzword. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of the competitors we see, though, are approaching this from this lens of like, hey, we'll add in more social features. We'll add in like stickers and like video filters and all of that. And that's kind of what we found is really the secret sauce is that it's not about all of these social features and all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. The social features need to be good enough. So you have to be able to jump online and communicate with other people and not feel like you're being held back by the platform. But where all of the focus needs to be is how do we empower the community manager, right? The person actually running this. Okay. Because what we mm-hmm. found is that every hour that we give you back of your time as a community manager, you're pretty much just going to invest that back into the community again. Yeah. And so yeah, it just yeah. becomes this like flywheel of we help you, you help the community, the community gets better. And mm-hmm. then, you know, it just makes it better and better and better for everybody that's there. Can you like uh, tell us again about what exactly it's heartbeat? Like, you know, for people like who, who are not coming from tech background, like for the normal yeah. man, how would uh, they understand what is heart? Yeah, absolutely. So when you create like a community and a community can be anything, right? So some mm-hmm. of the communities on heartbeat, we have like uh, startup fellowships, right? Which is a very like vanilla example. And okay. then we have things all over the place. Like we have courses where we have like, uh, you know, a course that you can jump on and they will teach you how to improve your memorization skills. Like they have an article in there of like how to memorize a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we even have communities. Like one of my favorite ones that just jumped on is it's a cat and dog community. So it's okay. for people that own cats and dogs mm-hmm. and their cats and dogs are fighting and you're trying to get better at training your cats and dogs. <laughs> cool. And it's, it's started by a pet trainer, mm-hmm. but she's basically bringing these people together, teaching them how to train their cats and dogs better. And it's one of the most profitable communities we have on Heartbeat. Um, awesome. So this is like an example of those communities. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're trying to figure out, all right, where do I have all my people talk online? Sometimes it's Facebook groups, sometimes it's Slack, sometimes it's WhatsApp, sometimes it's Discord. So you want a place for them to talk and then you want to be able to teach them stuff. So whether it's, I want to write an article or I want a video recording, or, Mm. you know, I want people to be able to see this, or, you know, you want to do live events where it's like, Hey, we're training our pets together. We're all going to learn this specific signal to train our pets. Let's jump on a zoom call and do this live over the course of two hours. And that way you have access to a pet trainer instantly. Mm. But right now, all three of these things happen in different places. So if you're running this community, you might have one piece of it happening in WhatsApp the second piece of it happening on, you know, Google Docs, where you're sending people all these Google Docs link. Mm-hmm. The third piece might happen on Meetup or Eventbrite, where you're sending people all these event links, and then Got you're it. sending them in their email too, right? So it's all scattered and it's all yeah, all over yeah. the place. 
Hmm. And so when you're a part of the community, it's hard for you to understand where do I go for the right piece of information? So we put all that in one space for you. And then when you put all that in one space, you can automate it for the community manager, right? So now when I create an event, it's going to send you emails. You're going to have it on your Google calendar. It's going to send you notifications through the Heartbeat app. It will check and ask you for feedback after the event happens. It'll log that. It'll move it into an analytics table. So now you know any event that I do, this is how it's performing. This is how people like it. I'm making sure people get access to it. And all of that happens in like two clicks. Amazing. So how, how does people make money out of community? So you said uh, right about this uh, community of uh, dog and cat community, right? So yeah. like, su- suppose if I'm starting a community of top freelancers or community of people who are into gaming or, you know, any kind of community. So how uh, can a community builder, like, uh, like as a profession, if I start, if, if I just passionate about, you know, building communities and that's what I want to do. Suppose if I start a community, so will I be able to make money and how do I monetize it? How, how does it work? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, so to answer your question on monetization, um, communities can make monies in a ton of ways. And this is something that we've honestly just been like trying to understand more and more because we're constantly surprised by how people are making money. Mm -hmm. So the most basic answer is you create a community. You're very thoughtful about who you let in the door. Uh, You're very thoughtful about the information, the content that you give them. And so you just say it costs you $5 a month to be a part of this community, right? That's the most basic way. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly common. So most people are doing that. And we've seen it go anywhere from $5 a month to be a part of this community to like, $250 a month to be a part of this community, right? So that scale is pretty wild. Mm -hmm. The second way that we see is, hey, we're going to have some free parts of this community and then we're going to sell content in this community. So now we're going to sell access to a course or, you know, you get to be a part of this community for free. Uh, So we we see this with a lot of finance communities where it's like, you get to be a part of this community for free, but we're going to bring a financial advisor onto a call every Sunday and you can ask them questions and it costs $5 to join that call, right? Okay. Or you pay $5 a month and you get access to all the calls, mm-hmm. right? So then you have a free version and a premium version of your community. And then the third way is you build a community. It's all the customers that you would want to serve for whatever product. Mm-hmm. And then you just build products and sell them to that set of customers. But the community itself is free. All the value is free, but you built it so that you can retain the attention of all those folks. So all those right. are sort of the three different ways. Mm-hmm. But when we, when we think about communities, we kind of think about them as like the malls of the internet, right? Where when you go into a mall there's any kind of stores that you can have into a mall, right? It doesn't matter. Like people can put up the weirdest things there. Mm-hmm. What a mall is important for is because it concentrates all of that foot traffic into one specific space. So that's exactly what a community is doing is it's concentrating all of this internet activity in one specific space. And then you can put together whatever stores you need to in that mall. Got it. So the way you put that analogy, right? like communities, is it's like a mall. It's like a marketplace, like uh, so a lot of people, basically you get traffic and there are multiple products that you're selling, right? So that's a really good perspective, which you suggested, right? And it kind of makes sense. And a lot, I see a lot of businesses uh, nowadays, like when it comes to marketing, they kind of do, uh, you know, they build communities. So what do you think about like, uh, like should every business has built communities? Like this is, is it like a modern marketing strategy or uh, what, what exactly it is? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think every business has the potential to build a community. I think there's a lot of people that you will kind of tell themselves, oh, you know, community, the people that we serve are too busy or too high profile or anything like that. But the honest answer is the the higher profile a person you're getting, the more they actually need community because they're not actually working with the types of people 
that they're they're not working with people that's in the same job as them as retake, right? So easy example, CTOs, right? Company mm-hmm. generally only has one CTO. Yeah. So they don't have a community of their peers. They don't have somebody to go to. So they're always kind of logging for it. Versus you go to just software engineers, right? Companies can have 10, 20, hundreds, thousands of software engineers. And mm-hmm. so sometimes they can just find that community internally. Uh, so I would say some of the biggest communities that are out there, um, they, they kind of fall into these categories of, you know, you could find this at work too, if you really looked for it. But some of the most necessary communities that I think people are always hesitant to start are those like really high level communities where it's like, oh, this is a very niche role or this is a very niche space that I'm in. The difficulty is, and when a company should not start a community is when they don't have the resources to actually manage it. So communities are incredibly time intensive. They take a lot of energy. You have to have at least one uh, one person who is full-time dedicated to running the community Mm -hmm. or else it's very quickly going to fall apart. Because what tends to happen is it takes a lot of activation energy to get a community to the point where people are just talking to each other, having their own conversations. And then when you get it to that point, now it becomes this like fire hydrant of activity because Mm -hmm. you'll get it to a point of activity and then people just keep talking more and more and more and more and it builds on top of itself. And then you as a community manager actually get more and more work because you'll get this fire hydrant of DMs, activity, conversations, comments, things like that. And if your presence isn't felt, then it's going to be like a blimp where it'll come, it'll get exciting, and then it'll disappear because they realize, oh, nobody's actually running this community. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have somebody that's actually full-time dedicated to running that community. And if you do it well, like it can be your primary source of lead generation. Like it can be the core thing that creates all of the sales and marketing growth for your company, but you have to actually dedicate the resources to it. And I think that's the misstep that most companies are, are falling into today where they'll get, you know, like a Slack group or a WhatsApp group, they'll drop everybody in it and then they'll call it a community. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it requires a lot more thought and intention than that. I think creators are doing it really well. Like uh, even though they are not doing it on Slack, like most of the, I think there are a lot of platforms out there today. Like uh, they try to build their community very uh, like uh, in a proper way because uh, I think most of the it, it happens really good because of the engagement if, if they continue to you know talk to their audience so I think that what makes us it, uh, really well I guess yeah absolutely and I think one thing that people forget about marketing is most marketing practices are not developed by big companies they're developed by like small indie hackers, growth hackers, things like that, mm-hmm. right? So like the biggest marketing practice today is like email and content marketing. But that was developed by just individual bloggers who are writing on their personal blogs, personal websites that coalesce into like blogger.com. Now there's like Medium. Now there's like, you know, WordPress sites and things like that. But the people that figured out a lot of this like initial, you know, work of like, how do you write content that feels genuine, authentic? get into people's email inboxes and get them to actually like click and respond to it. It wasn't like massive fortune 500 companies. It was like individual marketers, small startups, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then now you have companies like HubSpot where, you know, multi-billion dollar company runs their entire marketing engine off of content marketing. Right. And so that's kind of where we see it too, is like most of the best marketing practices will start with individuals, startups, creatives, Mm -hmm. and then they will slowly bubble up into larger and larger spheres of business. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good perspective. Yeah. So uh, let's get into uh, funding as well. 
so like uh, i've noticed you're talking a lot about uh, you know getting fu- funding and uh, all about this on twitter so yeah. like do you think like companies should go for funding or like uh, do you think bootstrapping is a better option first of all yeah this yeah absolutely it, it totally depends on your space right um and it depends on the kind of business that you want to be running so i think you can bootstrap a company and reliably get it to a couple million in revenue it will be a very solid side business like you will have a happy comfortable life like you won't be complaining about much mm-hmm. um for me it was less about the money and it was more about the impact okay. of how massive and impactful of a business can we create because mm-hmm. when we set out to build heartbeat it wasn't that we set out to build this billion dollar business we wanted to create a world where anybody could jump on the internet and instantly find their tribe of people and connect with them and yeah. that's what we cared about mm-hmm. and to get to that level of massive scale like we needed venture funding to make it happen like it was just impossible to have the amount of firepower you need yeah. and do it through bootstrapping mm-hmm. and so that's why for us venture funding was the right route there's like you know of course like the money is like a nice positive to it there's trade offs right when you do raise venture funding you're on a bit of a hamster wheel you have investors you have people that you're actually reporting to now right so it's the funny thing is a lot of people will go into a startup because they want to be their own boss but once you raise venture funding you do have these like pseudo bosses that kind of come in yeah. and no you know they're not going to like dictate you have to do this you have to do this you have to do that but you are sort of beholden to them and you do have people that are checking in to just make sure like the ship is running in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Uh and so I think there there are trade-offs but for us to hit the impact that we wanted to hit like venture funding was the route that we had to go down. Yeah, you know I think sometimes it, it's a good thing also like uh, if someone is there who's checking on you like kind of pushing you uh, that's yeah. a good thing for for your yeah, founders. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's honestly what we like a lot about our investors. So I think we were mm-hmm. in a very fortunate space where we had a ton of investors that came in. We actually ended up turning down more money than we took. Uh and the investors that we have are all like experienced operators. Like they've done this before. They've built multi- multiple billion dollar companies before. And so when they come in, you know, we'll do regular meetings and regular check-ins with them. They're really helping us sort of tweak our plans, build our metrics, make sure that we have strong goals that we're going after, make sure that the things that we said when we started the company are still the things that we're looking at every single day. So they really help us like stay focused on the north star with all of the craziness that just comes with building a company. Mm-hmm. And I think the experience that they have also lends to them knowing these are the areas where you know we don't really need to get too involved right so one example is you know a few months back we actually like changed a little bit around our sales strategy we knew we were experimenting more so we were experiencing a drop in sales and so you know normally any company when they go back to their team and they're like sales dropped it's not a great like message to come back to mm-hmm. when we talked about it with our investors they were like yeah that's fine we kind of expected that you know and it should drop this week and next week and then we should see it picking up the week after yeah. and lo and behold that's exactly what happened but it's like just having them know that this was the process and know that mm-hmm. like this is not something to be worried about and these are what the larger goals look like yeah. uh is just really freeing for me as a founder mm-hmm. makes sense yeah So w- what advice uh, would you would give to a founders who are like raising funds like what what is the one of the biggest lesson which you have learned while raising funding Yeah so there's there's a couple angles to that question right some of it's about raising funding and some of it's about actually accepting funding and i would mm-hmm. say when you're raising the biggest thing that you have to keep in mind is the signaling that you're putting out there when you're raising uh so especially early stage companies fundraising is less about have you built a good company and it's more about have you built a really good story 
uh, it's the sales process. That's the thing that you have to keep in mind. Right. And like, that's not saying build a bad company and go raise. You're going to have to deal with that later. Right. But uh, it's saying that even if you have built a good company, that doesn't mean it's just immediately going to be easy for you to raise. Mm -hmm. And so you have to focus a lot of time and energy on crafting a really compelling narrative. Uh, And I give a lot of advice on how to do that better. Um, And mostly I recommend it's through figuring out what are the market trends and the tailwinds that you're building your company off of? How has the market created uh, an environment where your company is now inevitable? And so that's kind of number one on storytelling. And then on signaling is every single interaction you have with an investor, you need to push them towards the next meeting, towards the next conversation, towards the term sheet. Uh, And you need to basically build enough of a momentum around your company by setting a ton of meetings in a very short period of time to be able to lean on investors to move forward. Because the problem that most founders face, and they don't realize they face this, is that uh, there is this uh, hidden problem when you go pitch to investors. So when I pitch to an investor and they have enough time Uh, they can basically take the deal. They can talk about it with their friends. They can see how this person feels, this person feels. They don't even have to mention the company name. They can just ask, hey, what do you think about the community space? And they have all of these people that they can go to. They're also reviewing, you know, five to 10 deals every single day versus I pitch once every 18 months, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this massive information asymmetry problem where they actually know more about the funding market for my business than I do. Uh, and so the only way that you can actually remove this information asymmetry problem is by lining up a ton of meetings in a very short period of time. Because when you do that, the investor doesn't have time to go grab drinks with you know, their friend over the weekend or go golfing with somebody and talk about the deal. They have to make decisions within the minute, within the hour. Uh, and by forcing them to make their decisions faster, you remove that ability to go and shop the deal around. Mm-hmm. And now their deal is focused on you. Uh, It also pushes you further along into the process. Now, I don't think investors will give a term sheet too often to a company, you know, if they weren't going to give it anyways, but it gets you to that end stage much faster. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, when we went out and raised, we ended up getting our first term sheet within 30 days. Previous companies that have built, it's taken us like six, eight, nine months to get the first term sheet. And it wasn't because the company was, you know, in any different stage. Like, yeah, we, we did a lot better with Heartbeat when we were getting it set up, but it was purely because of the storytelling. Uh, and that's the big thing that I've really taken away as I've, you know, gone through more and more rounds of funding is just, it's about the storytelling, it's about the signaling, and it's about crafting this momentum around your company when you go out and raise. Yeah, yeah. So I also noticed one thing, like you uh, shared some pictures of like, you know, reaching out to a lot of people, a lot of investors, a lot of founders. So do you do it by yourself or like, uh, how do you do this and why founders should like reach out to more people? Yeah. So I, I do it all by myself. Um, so the introductions is like the biggest part of like a fundraise because the reality is, is like investors are taking hundreds of meetings a year and you need to stand out in all of that noise. And the easiest way to stand out is to get somebody the investor knows to introduce you in. Okay. Um, right. And so I've sent hundreds and hundreds of cold emails to investors. None of them ever get responses, maybe like okay. 5%, 2% get mm-hmm. responses. It's very, very low. And so if you're a founder and you're trying to make a raise and you can't even get meetings with one, 2% of investors, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and so the difficulty, so, so the thing that you have to shift there is you have to focus on intros. 
the hard thing about intros is like, they're, they're not easy to get. And I didn't come into this industry with a massive network of people. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what I had to do is figure out how do you actually get those intros? And what I found is like, you know, I'm 25 being a young founder, the easiest way to get those intros was talking to other founders who were in my shoes and had raised mm-hmm. from those investors. There. And so, you know, I would ask, friends of mine that I'd gone through accelerator programs with, or I'd ask friends of friends Mm -hmm. and I'd get them to, you know, intro me to their friends and to their friends and their friends. Mm -hmm. And we'd go like five intros deep with other founders. Right. And somehow we'd find, you know, a founder of a massive company that was willing to make intros Mm -hmm. to 10 different funds. Right. And, you know, a lot of my friends, when I first started this, they weren't raising like millions of dollars at best. It would raise 10,000 here, 20,000 there. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't anything incredibly meaningful, but it was just, you know, if you go through their network and their network's network and all of that, you'll find something, right? And right, so you just right. begin with the intros. Yeah, totally makes sense. Like instead of, you know, directly approaching them and if you could like approach them to uh, intro that, yeah, that, that completely makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of liken it to the analogy of a duck, right? Because, you know, a duck or a swan is actually the better one, right? Swan on the surface, very calm, cool, collected, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the bottom, you can just see its legs are like paddling away, just trying to stay above the water. And that's kind of the way intros work, right? Where you hustle your butt off trying to get the right intro into the right organization. And then when you get your intro, you walk in, you act cool, calm and collected as if, you know, you weren't even expecting an intro. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Uh, So what are you into outside of your work? Like uh, when you don't work, what do you do? How do you spend your time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Honestly, a lot of my time goes into just reading, running, um, binging like Netflix shows, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. I am a, a complete addict to like League of Legends. So I'll play like video games, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, it's just like finding ways to just hang out with friends. I think I'm definitely like a people person. So just spending time to like hang out with friends, you know, keep up with like the relationships in my personal life and just make sure that everything's good there. Yeah, awesome. Uh, your favorite books, like, uh, you know, uh, like a couple of your favorite books, which you would, which really changed your life kind of, and which could help people as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a couple that I always really recommend. So one of my favorite ones is winner takes all, uh, okay. and it's by Anand Kirdaris. And, uh, the book, honestly, it's like an economics book. And my, my background is Mm -hmm. like economic and financial systems. Mm -hmm. Um, the book actually talks about how the world is constructed. And a lot of these systems that you don't actually know that play against you, Uh, talks about it actually in terms of venture capital, he talks about in terms of government, in terms of consulting, a lot of different spaces. He talks about it in the terms of like stories of different people's lives. Um, that was a really great one. And then the other one that I read recently that I really enjoyed was from Dr. Paul Kalanithi, uh, who was, it's a book called When Breath Becomes Air. And so uh, Paul was actually a surgeon. He was the chief resident at Stanford Medical, uh, and then he got brain cancer. And he talks about his journey and he eventually passed away from it, but he talks about his journey sort of coming to terms with that. And it was just beautifully written. And I think it just makes you really reflect like, you have this like high pressured life where you're trying to operate and do all these things, but there's also life outside of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, is there any founder or resources that you follow, like, you know, to get uh, or maybe podcasts, which you listen to get, you know, more uh, like knowledge about the markets and about industry. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. In terms of community masters of community by David Spinks is one that I listen to a ton. 
Um, so I honestly try to like grab every episode of that. Uh, the other one in terms of just a founder, I've actually really been getting into Alex Lieberman, uh, Alex Lieberman's founder journal. Uh, I've been really enjoying that, uh, where he just sort of walks through, it's a little bit of his daily journaling and daily logs, but it's also just like talking about the story of how they built morning brew, how they put the company together, all of that. Cool. Awesome. So, uh, you already told me you're 25, right? Mm -hmm. So are you single married? <laughs> uh, I'm dating now and, uh, parents are asking the married question a lot, but, uh, we'll, we'll kind of see where it goes. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much, Mutada. It was really great talking to you. We got a lot of insights and your perspective on building communities and everything around it and uh, uh, about funding as well. It was really great talking to you. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for having me.